1: this is jenna ellis in the morning
0: good morning happy monday november 27th and i hope that everyone here in the united states had a very good thanksgiving holiday i got to spend it with my family and my little nephews and niece and my two little puppies who are sitting beside me this morning on the couch i decided to kind of set up my my radio setup a little bit different this morning normally i'm on a table and i Watch them, but they uh, they they're getting so big, and they're sitting here chewing on uh, their their bones, not leftover Thanksgiving bones, of course. Um, I don't want to get in uh, into <laughs> to all of that from from listeners, but they are doing a uh, really good Todd and Copper, and they had a great little doggy Thanksgiving as well. But uh, we're going to be focused on things outside of the United States for the hour this morning, and there was a lot of news that happened around the world, not just in the United States. I know a lot of us kind of uh, tuned out. As 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 we should sometimes, uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. But what's going on around the world, particularly in Europe, um, Europe is at the precipice of falling to uh, Marxism and uh, really just some terrible, terrible infiltration of statism and some of these ideas. So kind of a recap of what happened in Ireland. I want to welcome in our first guest, uh, Keith Woods, who is an Irish political activist and journalist. And so, Keith, um, this started with a stabbing from an illegal immigrant or an immigrant um i'm I'm not sure which if it was legal versus illegal into ireland Um, but it was an immigrant nonetheless Uh, so what happened with this and where are we at in terms of uh, this new proposed law now against hate speech in in ireland seems like we started there and now it rapidly escalated
2: hi Janet, it's good to be here so What happened Thursday was there was a stabbing outside a a school in Dublin. Three very young children were stabbed. I think the youngest was five years old. Now, initially, the media was refusing to report on the nationality of this perpetrator. Um, There was only one publication that actually published the nationality. They had the information from the police here, um, which was GRIP, which is like a kind of alternative media um, Catholic publication. But the rest of the media was complicit in, in trying to hide that information from the public. Now, this man was uh, Algerian, origin. Uh, he had been in Ireland 20 years, and he came, as many do, claiming asylum, uh, but had his asylum status rejected. He was not a real refugee, like many people who come in this program. They're economic migrants, 70-80% um, of them are men, young men that are, you know, seeking economic opportunity. But he was rejected, but as is often the case, you know, we have this bloated system of left-wing NGOs, and they advocated for him to stay here, and over the course of years of legal battle, he was eventually given citizenship. Now, it gets even worse, because earlier this year, he was actually in court on a knife charge. Um, And, you know, I would have thought that would be reason enough to deport a migrant if they're in court for criminal damage on a knife charge. But he was found to be um, mentally incapable. They found that you know there were circumstances about his mental health that meant he could not be prosecuted, and so he was allowed to walk. So there was justifiable anger uh, amongst the population in Dublin. You know, this is inner city Dublin is now about 43, 44% Irish people. Uh, It's been just a, a rapid, rapid demographic transformation. And it's, it's one of the you know, less affluent areas, uh, the inner city. And so the working class people there are, are you know, watching their country disappear before their eyes. And anytime they've tried to express discontent about this, anytime they've tried to make their voice known on, on what this mass migration is doing to their communities, they've been shut down by the government and the media. They get labeled far right. They get labeled extremists. And for the last over a year, they've been protesting peacefully. There's been these protests uh, in Dublin where families come out, mothers come out with with pushchairs and problems, and say that they're concerned about their children. They're concerned about this influx of unvetted male migrants and what it's going to do to the safety of their children. But again, they've been totally shut down by the government, by the media, the left-wing NGO complex. And so it really just boiled over into, you know, the people came out and, yeah, it turned into rioting. Um, it turned into um, some violent scenes. But I really have to blame the government on this because when you don't give people a means to express valid concerns that they know are reasonable about immigration, about the effects of this on Ireland, you, know, you kind of make it an unfortunate reality that people are going to express their frustration in other ways if you won't give them a peaceful means to express it. And this gets to the hate speech laws, which are some of the most draconian in the world. I mean, I think... Eventually, these laws will come to everywhere in the West if we don't fight back, but this is a, an especially bad example of it, where you can get up to five years in jail merely for possessing what's called hateful materials on your device. So, you know, you have a you have a meme on your phone or your laptop, and even if you didn't have any intent to distribute that, even if you had no intent to, to spread hate, you could potentially go to jail for possessing that. And government ministers in the government have said explicitly The purpose of these laws is to shut down what they call the far-right threat, which they connect to opposition to mass migration. So it all goes in tandem. The speech laws are there to silence opposition to this mass migration plantation agenda. And so, unfortunately, you know, people express their discontent in any way they can. And then, of course, when they go out and riot, because they have no peaceful means to express their opposition to immigration, then that's used as a justification to bring even even more strict hate speech laws. So it's a it's a terrible system, but at the end of the day the Irish people lose.
0: Yes and I'm speaking with uh, Keith Woods who is an Irish political activist and journalist and uh, and Keith you're you're so right that this is a progression of events and I appreciate the way that you laid this out because it's the government who is allowing this type of immigrant population to invade the country of Ireland they do nothing about it the people Uh, protest their government in civil and lawful means. And then an incident like this occurs and the people get outraged, then it's blamed on the far right. And then there are draconian laws that come in to supposedly uh, quell the violence and quell the, the dissent. But really, this is all about the government inciting a uh, really um, this this type of policy that is not good for the people and then using their own bad policy in order to then push through this type of um, really Marxist and, and 1984 kind of um Draconian, as you called it, hate speech law, that if you even merely possess materials that could, quote unquote, incite violence or just hate against the government, now it's punishable by jail. I mean, this is completely eroding what Western civilization is all about and the fundamental rights of the people to... Uh, to look at their government and, and to dissent and so this is a cautionary tale I think that parallels what's going on in the United States and so there was a, a vocal critic as well Connor uh, Conor McGregor Who's one of um, your most most uh, famous athletes? That's um, in Ireland who is a vocal critic of government policy and he's now even under investigation for quote-unquote dissemination of online hate speech. I mean this is ridiculous
2: Yeah, it's an insane system. And, you know, like you alluded to there, I mean, who defines extreme? Because this is every conversation about immigration here is is now dominated by these buzzwords like the far right, you know, extremism and so on. But the fact is, whenever they poll the Irish people, and this is really true across the West, I mean, whenever they poll the people, people are against this mass uncontrolled immigration uh, according to a poll earlier this year, 75% of Irish people, three and four, don't think we should take any more refugees, and it's because these refugees, they're economic migrants. Um, you can look at the, you know, the history in Ireland when we used to have a, a real process around this. We used to find that 99% of these people were just simply male economic migrants that were looking for a better life. Look, it's understandable, but that's not what the refugee process is for. And then you look at countries like. So today, Canada has a 70% approval rating for, for people claiming asylum. It's getting to the point. You just have to show up in a Western country, say the word asylum, and you'll be provided with housing and benefits and uh, job opportunities. And the Irish people see this, and we have a, a historic housing crisis. And they just see the the discrepancy here. And then they see that no one in the media represents this point of view. They know that Irish people feel this. They have conversations about this every day amongst themselves. But it gets no expression in the media. It gets shut down. It gets censored on social media. And now we're going to have laws to silence this kind of perspective. So, again, when you declare the majority of the population far right extremists and you say that their perspective is illegitimate, they can't express it in any peaceful, legitimate means, I'm sorry, but you are creating the conditions that's going to cause conflict and violence, which no one wants to see. But this rests with Western governments that are silencing legitimate concerns.
0: Yes, and, and that's absolutely correct, and I'm talking with uh, Keith Woods, who is an Irish political activist and journalist, and uh, the your Irish prime minister is now demanding that this hate speech law, which um, Ireland is preparing to pass and, and I think is arguably the most radical legislation of its kind that we've seen um, across the West in terms of of Europe and the United States and Canada Uh, and he is calling for this hate speech law to be passed immediately um, so that the government can arrest Irish individuals who speak out and he said quote our incitement to a hater hateful legislation is not up to date and we need it through in a matter of a week so do you actually think that um that Ireland is going to pass this, or what is the the perspective there? I mean, he's calling for this to to be passed in a, in the matter of a week.
2: Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Um, they've been working on this for a number of years, and as usual, you know, all of the the typical NGOs and globalist organizations were lobbying for this. One of them was the Irish Network Against Racism, which is part of this group called the European Network Against Racism, which is actually primarily funded by George Soros, so you know, all the usual types have been working very hard to get Ireland up to date with the we- the rest of, uh, you know, the Liberal West. But this has gone through our-, our first House of Parliament, it means, you know, it's effectively passed by maybe some amendments, but yeah, we're going to have this extreme hate speech legislation. We see the effects of this in the UK, they have similar laws, as you say, this is even worse. But, I mean, we saw last year a woman was arrested outside an abortion clinic because she was silently brained in the UK. know, this is the kind of draconian stuff people deal with every day in the UK. People get police showing up at their door, arresting them for tweets, telling them they have to check their thinking. So, you know, it's just uh, it's a continual process in the West where we go further and further into this, uh, you know, as you said, 1984 uh, dystopian version of things. But this is how necessary it's getting there, to silence dissent, because you're seeing, you know, you saw the riots in Dublin. Uh, there's been similar uh, protests in France recently about uh, an attack that happened on, on that targeted white children there. The population are slowly waking up to this. I think social media is, is playing a big role in it, and you even have politicians in Ireland now talking about they need to do something to silence Twitter, X because Elon Musk was, was getting involved in this, um, mm-hmm. rightly pointing out that the Irish Taoiseach hates Irish people just based on his own words. You know, our our own leader talks about our institutions being too white. He says we need more brown and black faces in the civil service. Well I'm sorry, but you know, this is Ireland and the institution should be populated by Irish people. And, you know, suddenly we're getting this, this woke idea that we need to fill our institutions up with uh, non Irish, non white people. I mean this is a this is a form of ethnic cleansing on the institutional level. And people have every right to oppose it and it's going to take extreme censorship you know as you mentioned people like conor mcgregor now who have huge audiences and huge respect in ireland it's getting to the point where people like this are even speaking out and he's raising very legitimate concerns and now they're talking about shutting all of these people down
0: well we will be praying for ireland and this is why america needs to uh, look at what's going on in the we- in the West across the globe, not just be so myopically focused on the wokeism and Marxism that's going on in the United States. This is a global phenomenon and it is the radical left that is trying to tear down Western civilization, Um, Europe is on the precipice of falling. The United States is on the precipice of falling. And for those of us listening, we need to be praying every day that the Lord would prevail and that our institutions and freedom and liberty would prevail. We'll be right back with more. Finally, some good news. Because of you, Preborn has rescued over 44,000 babies this year alone. Right now, thousands of mothers are awaiting birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Since its beginnings, Preborn's Networks of Clinics has rescued over 270,000 babies. That is a miracle. The overturning of Roe versus Wade only made the left more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more passionate to save babies. Thanks to Preborn, we can do just that. For $28, you can empower a mother to choose life. Once she sees the precious life growing inside of her and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is twice as likely to choose life. And right now, through your match, your gift is doubled. Please give your most generous gift that will go 100% toward life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Welcome back, and we are focusing on topics outside of the United States because the West is falling, and we have to uh, focus on what is going on globally, and of course, what is going on in Israel. There is some good news out of Israel over the weekend. Hamas releases 17 hostages Sunday as Israel releases 39 Palestinian prisoners in this exchange. So joining me now with our, uh, what has become weekly. And I'm so very grateful for that. Uh, Israel update is our good friend, Joel Rosenberg, who's the editor in chief of all Israel news. So Joel, good morning. And, um, this is good news, but, uh, is this type of exchange, um, actually beneficial um, to the ongoing conflict with Hamas, or uh, what, what is the perspective there uh, with the hostage release?
3: Jenna, great to be with you. Well, yes, uh, we need to take this first and foremost as a huge answer to prayer. We've got uh, more than 40 hostages have been released total between Israelis and foreigners. Uh, these include Thai and Filipino workers who were just here doing agricultural work um, legally and were captured uh, by the Hamas terrorists and, and caught into a conflict they're not even part of. Um, so, this, we've, you know, you and others and your audience and so many millions of Christians have been praying for the release of these hostages, and it's happening. So, this is good. Uh, there are many more to go. We've got about 200 more hostages that have to be released. And it's not exactly clear how that's going to happen. Uh, but I think the fact that there's movement is, is a positive thing. The price that Israel is having to pay is high. And nobody in Israel is happy with it um, because we don't want to be negotiating with terrorists and we don't want to give away Palestinian prisoners who were convicted of either trying to stab people, kill people, uh, attack uh, our, our soldiers, but this is, this is the, the no-win situation that we have, and we are putting life, the lives of our hostages above all else right now. This is our principle, and this is where we are. And so um, I think we need to thank the Lord. We also have to pray for all the release of all those hostages and that Israel then goes back and finishes the job to defeat, completely dismantle Hamas.
0: Yeah, well said. And, and I think that um, that that is, while it's a great thing and we have been praying for the release of these hostages, the price is very high because uh, these 39 Palestinian prisoners that were uh, set to be released, uh, these these are all convicted terrorists, is my understanding. And, and a lot of them were convicted of attempted murder. And those are the ones that were released as part of the humanitarian um Exchange and so, how does this then uh, play into the conflict overall? Um, would this just encourage um, more terrorism? Well,
3: uh, you know, um, I'd have to say it probably would encourage more terrorism. Um, Be honest. And, and why do I say that? Because um, about a decade ago, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu made a deal to get one. Israeli hostage out. It was a young Israeli soldier named Gilad Shalit. He was captured by Hamas uh, on, in a border raid on the Gaza border. He was taken into Gaza and never heard from for years. I mean, years. No matter what we did, we couldn't get him back. In the end, Netanyahu released more than a thousand Palestinian prisoners to get that one soldier back. Now, everyone in Israel felt that, generally speaking, he did the right thing, because we consider every Israeli life precious, and we would never want to see any of our people left behind enemy lines but with, with savages and barbarians. But who was one of those thousand prisoners released? Uh, it was, his name was Yahya Sinwar. He is the head of Hamas, and he is the mastermind of this whole uh, October 7th invasion and massacre. So... We released the very guy who, a decade or so later, came back to murder more Israeli Jews than any time uh, since the Holocaust. So is it going to encourage more terrorism? Yes. But what is our option right now? We're just going to leave our 240 innocent babies, grandmothers, mothers, and fathers. We're just going to leave them there? No, there's a social contract. right? These are not soldiers. Um, that were fighting. These were people living, sleeping in their own beds on a Saturday morning, on a holiday morning, going about their, their business, getting ready for parties and playing with their friends, and they were kidnapped. And it's just so evil. It's so wicked. And I know there's a lot of criticism. I'm getting a lot of blowback on Twitter, you know, that Israel's making a huge mistake. Look, I understand that sentiment, but we have to do it. Now, the question is, Here's the big question is, are we going to then give up and not continue fighting Hamas when this is over? I mean, this is the problem. We got, you know, maybe 40 or so back. We'll get 50 back, hopefully, by the end of today. But then, then what? The the deal, Jenna, that was written was that if Hamas gives it back another day of pause from fighting, and every day that they give back 10, then they would get another day Uh, free from Israel fighting them. So the expectation is that they're going to exploit this. But again, what are our options? The, the, The question is, after that, right, after we get all or most of our hostages, are we going to say, okay, that's enough? I don't think any Israeli is going to agree to that, right? We have to defeat Hamas, and their main base camp of headquarters was Gaza City, so we conquered that. But now we have to go to a place in the south Called Khan Yunis near the Egyptian border, and that is where the, all the leaders of Hamas are currently. We have to destroy them.
0: Yeah, and and I think that truly is uh, Jill Rosenberg the the sentiment, um, not only in Israel but I think anyone who is pro Israel is it it there is frustration, and I understand that the the comments that you've described that you've received, but then also you know what are the options? I mean, that when you are dealing with evil often there are not perfect options. There's not a best-case scenario. There's only what is the least bad out of some um, not really great possibilities. I mean, that just happens in in a variety of scenarios when you're dealing with genuinely evil people. Um, But in terms of of moving forward and just crushing Hamas and ensuring that there isn't this kind of ongoing um, captivity to negotiating with terrorists – uh, what is the the overall um, game plan in terms of what you're aware of from Israel's leadership? Have they articulated that, yeah. or are they kind of still seeing what goes on with the hostages?
3: Uh, no, the, the 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 focus is consistent uh, by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, by our Defense Minister, by all our top leadership. They're saying our goal is to destroy and dismantle Hamas. Number one. Number two, get the hostages back. And number three, make sure this can never happen again. Those are the three goals of the war and, and Israel's being consistent. The X factor, um, uh, Jenna, is, is President Biden. right? If President Biden starts to tie Israel's hands and, 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 and force us into a, a, a prolonged or permanent ceasefire when we've gotten all or most of our hostages back— that's going to be the problem, right? If President Biden says, I'm not giving you any more weapons to keep fighting, um, you have to stop. Then Israel's going to be in a very dangerous position because we will have not won. We will have, you know, we've, we will have gone halfway at this point. We conquered the north, but there's still the south. And how can any Israeli live uh, in their bed peacefully at night if we surrender because President Biden forces us surrender. Now, I'm not saying he will. I'm saying he's sending a lot of signals that are mixed. And when he's talking to a pro-Israel audience or, or to Prime Minister Netanyahu himself or to a Jewish audience, he sounds very tough. So that's good. But right when he talks to, you know, uh, the U.N. or when he talks to others, he sounds – or to the Europeans, he sounds like, look, look, we, enough is enough. We need, to, we need this to become a ceasefire. And I'm afraid – And that's what every Israeli is afraid of, is that Biden is going to end up tying our hands. The question would be, what would we do then? But I think there needs to be an enormous amount of pressure on President Biden to keep with his rhetoric. His rhetoric is, Israel has to do this. It's not comfortable. Nobody wanted to do it, right? And, And yes, too many civilians are dying, but not because we're doing it on purpose. It's because Hamas is using them as human shields, and we're doing everything we can to minimize civilian Yes, but but it's almost impossible. So enormous amount of political pressure and public pressure needs to be put on the Biden administration because Biden is getting wobbly in the knees, and not just physically and not just mentally, but politically he's getting wobbly on standing with us. We don't need him to get wobbly, right? This is uh, what was the famous Margaret Thatcher line, right, to George H.W. Bush when when, uh, Iraqis Bush didn't seem like he was really going to do anything about it. And uh, Margaret Thatcher came over and said, George, don't go wobbly. Right? And that's the key here. We don't, Biden can't go wobbly. And so Republicans and Democrats, people of all goodwill in the United States, need to tell the president, stand with Israel. Help, help them help us finish the job.
0: So, Joel Rosenberg, who is the editor-in-chief of All Israel News and joining us this morning, you should follow him on X at Joel C. Rosenberg. Uh, do you think that conservative Christians who stand with Israel are doing enough to put public pressure and comment and support uh, behind Israel? behind Israel and encouraging the Biden administration enough when you see um, so many of the pro-Hamas students, for example, who are protesting and who are putting uh, public pressure through the media stories on the Biden administration to be pro-Palestine?
3: Yeah, Uh, I would say I'm very encouraged by conservatives, by evangelicals, by American Jews overall so far. But the the pause that came with the release of these 50 hostages over the last few days, but you know, hopefully getting to 50 by tonight came right at an American holiday, right? So the holiday weekend of Thanksgiving, uh, we were very thankful, but it also allowed people to sort of not pay attention for a few days, right? And go, okay, well, maybe that's getting better over there and shift back to other domestic concerns, but we need to, we, we can't let up, okay? Because this is not just a fight to protect Israel, right? These radical Islamists are all being funded, trained, armed, and directed by the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime has attacked dozens of American servicemen and installations all throughout the Middle East, and Biden has done some things but not much to protect our troops, right? And so Iran is ultimately driving this. This is a fight with Iran, and that's why Biden has to be uh, pushed, by by conservative liberals, I don't mean the far left lunatic, you know, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, you know, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel people, anti-American people. I'm talking about the broad swath of the American people, regardless of party, needs to push Biden stand with Israel because and stand against Iran. Don't give Iran six billion dollars. Don't um, let lighten up on. Um, uh, uh, making sure the sanctions get, uh, you know, are, are strong and, and are, are well enforced, right? He's going soft on all these things right now, out of some classically wrong concept that if you're nice to the Iranian regime, they'll be nice to you. It's exactly opposite. If you're tough with the Iranian regime, that's the and and you, and you send them strong signals, and it may come. Look, it may come to actual military conflict with Iran, but they're already close, 84%. They only need to get to 90% to build nuclear weapons. So this is not a time to, to be soft or be appeasing of the Iranian regime, because that's what the American people, that's what you and others and anyone you can influence, have to keep, keep people focused on. This is not about Hamas. Hamas is a small actor in a small section Of of the world, this is about Iran. Iran considers Israel the little Satan, right? They consider us satanic, but we're the only, only the little Satan. Iran's regime considers the United States the great Satan, and I'm going to tell you, Jenna, what you've you've heard me say almost every time we I've been on your show is ultimately the Iranian regime is coming after the United States, and God only knows that they've already infiltrated through the Mexican border, um, uh, forces ready to commit these type of Hamas-style, ISIS-style attacks inside the United States. You may recall, and your audience may recall, that I wrote a novel about this that was published earlier this year called The Libyan Diversion, where an an Iranian-backed terror regime uh, creates a diversion to get the American people and leadership focused someplace else, in this case Libya, when actually they're moving uh, terrorist forces in through the Mexican border, through terror tunnels on the Texas border. This is my fear. I don't just write about it as fiction just because it sounds like an interesting story. It's to, it's to alert people. This is what the Iranian regime wants to do, and we have to take it seriously on border security, on Israel security, and on stopping Iran from getting the bomb.
0: Really well said, Jill Rosenberg. And I think that is a very timely encouragement and also um, exhortation of Christians that um, as we're going into the Christmas season and the Christmas holiday, there is a tendency to just kind of ignore uh, politics and world politics and all of the um, the negative stories to say, well, we want to focus on the joy of the season and we need to um, to not just kind of bury our head in the sand over the next month, but really pay attention to what is still going on in terms of world conflicts, what's going on here in America. We still need to support Israel. We need to encourage uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, to continue to stand firm for Israel. Yeah. Um, I think that he will, knowing him and in um, Israel's support. And we need to continue to pray um, for you, for the Israel hostages, for this conflict, and to still be engaged with our government. Um, so, Joel Rosenberg, all really, really appreciate your updates. And thank you so much. And we're praying for you and your family, for your safety. Uh, follow Joel Rosenberg at All Israel News for all of the updates and also on X at Joel C. Rosenberg, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for health care. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the health care needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians. And that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only give Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry, serving all fifty states. Share the good news with a friend, too. dot com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Welcome back. And as we are in this post Thanksgiving week, uh, looking at world events and looking at the really worldwide clash between freedom and liberty and basic uh, human rights, basic acknowledgement that human beings are made in the image of God, have inherent dignity and worth, have a right to direct uh, their own lives and uh, prosperity, and that the government's purpose is to secure the rights of people, not to uh, dominate them and infiltrate with woke Marxism. Uh, we look at how the West is falling, and and we look at this clash between what the left would like to typify as the the rights extremism. Oh, yeah, it's really extreme that we want freedom and liberty uh, across the Western world, and um, it, that's you know that's really extreme. But they're they're trying to uh, forcibly uh, force the West to comply with um, this type of Marxism that is is truly trying to tear down Western civilization and the concepts of freedom and liberty, and force uh, the the people to follow a, a government regime that is for total control and to eventually look like, for example, what Argentina has looked like um, for uh, the last you know several years. And we turn now to Argentina because there is a little bit of hope that some uh, people are fighting back. And the new president-elect there, um, he's, he's actually being uh, typified the Argentinian Donald Trump, which I think is is interesting. And there are some parallels in terms of Um, their outlook in being for their country's people first. And a very interesting headline that the Argentinian president-elect says dissolution of the central bank is a top priority. This coming from trending politics news, and he said in an ex post Friday that the closure of the nation's central bank is non-negotiable. And uh, this this came as he campaigned as a libertarian who has vowed to curtail Argentina's welfare state and make significant cuts to government. Bureaucracy. So joining us now is our resident uh, economic expert and uh, commentator, Tho Bishop, who is uh, with the Mises Institute. And Tho, I think this is actually a great start for Argentina. Um, can this genuinely be accomplished by their president-elect?
1: Hey, good morning, Jenna. Um, yes, I, I, I think that you will see... Uh, Javier Malay is going to face the same internal pressures that someone like Donald Trump faced uh, going up against you know, the Argentine equivalent of the, the deep state. I think the what Malay has going for him is that with his outstanding victory, I mean, 55 percent of the vote, a large, large upswing of, of particularly young voters. Um, you know, he really has a mandate here to accomplish his biggest hallmark kind of priority, which is abolishing uh, the Argentine central bank. It also helps that the peso has been devaluing rapidly. I mean, we're talking about triple digit inflation. Um, you know, it, it's something that has continued to, to take a hit for you know, during, as the election has played out, the strength of the currency got worse and worse. And so I think this is something that Malay is going to be able to accomplish. And uh, his, his election really is a, a major moment, not just for Argentina. Um, But really, I think for for South America, broadly, for someone who ran on such a a radical anti-state, anti-Marxist message that had a very much that same sort of um, larger than life Trump persona, Um, you know, it's kind of similar to Brazil with uh, the election of uh, Javier uh, Bolsonaro a few years ago. Um, This is a very major uh, win for the Argentine people, something they should be very thankful for.
0: Yes. And I was actually thinking of uh, Bolsonaro right as you mentioned him as well, that um, you know that was a great thing for the people of Brazil. But then, you know, we look at now um, with their their new president and the ouster of Bolsonaro and, um, you know, seeing how this is always a tension between a, a leader who is for freedom and liberty and for the people versus um, what we would call here in America, you know, more of the establishment or um, those who are in power that want to use the state to force their will. On the people, and so um, you know, according to uh, to some interviews that that Malay has done um, in uh, various media outlets, you know, he may face difficulty in realizing his ambitious agenda, which includes dollarizing the economy, shutting uh, shuttering the central bank, and privatizing state companies. And uh, trending politics news also goes on to say his libertarian coalition has a limited number of seats in Congress, meaning that Malay will need to rely more on mainstream conservative factions. Who played a key role in his victory, and so how much um, during the tenure of his presidency um, could we see some changes in Argentina, like what we saw in Brazil under Bolsonaro? Uh,
1: I think the, the big one guess, if, if he can accomplish the, the central bank aspect, that will help a lot from a variety of perspectives. One is that he, he, it, it the biggest thing is that it cuts the degree to which. The Government can rely upon the Argentine Central bank to help finance all this reckless spending elsewhere, and ultimately you you have to have both sides if if, if they do not make fiscal reforms, then you're going to face similar dynamics with you know the you know, that you know on the economic side but I think that's one of the reasons why he is going for the outright abolishment of the central bank rather than trying to say fix the peso right is that you have. It, it, it cuts the incentive structure because now he's essentially outsourcing the monetary policy of Argentina to the Fed. Now, as Americans, we can complain about the Fed's policies, inflation, whatever, but relative to what the Bank of Argentina has done, it's much, much better than what they've had down there. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he wants to sever that, that cut that connection entirely, is that that will mandate effectively, um, you know, if you can't print money, then you have to look at other means. If they can start, that's where he wants to start abolishing certain departments and things like that. And I think leveraging the monetary aspect is a very effective way of trying to pursue some of those ends. Um, now, Malay himself, I think one of the big differences between him and a, and a Bolsonaro, um, and and him, and, and even with a, a Donald Trump, is that you know, this is someone whose background is a, a intellectual by trade. He is someone who who has a very specific um, ideology. Uh, which is kind of unique to a populist sort of background. Um, a lot of a lot of populist leaders they they're transactional by nature. They bring in different coalitions. That's what helps kind of ex- expand their popularity. Um, you know, Donald Trump was very effective at bringing in different types of people and and having that aspect as part of of his coalition. Um, Malay is someone who comes from a very strong uh, uh, ideological background. He's someone who made his campaign very ideological in nature and so while his victory he's going to be able to use that, that sort of electoral mandate i think to help hopefully bring in some of the traditional conservative party to kind of follow his lead unfortunately though i think you're going to continue to see you know he's not going to be able to snap his fingers and get everything they campaigned on done um you know hopefully this is a a political party that he has developed that will strengthen over time so that he can get more allies there um so, there's going to be an element of moderation. That's an element of politics. That's going to be part of that. But if he can accomplish, again, that's why the, the monetary aspect is so important because the monetary aspect will necessitate discipline upon the government in other areas. That's why big, big governments don't like, you know, that's why they like central banks that can print as much as they want because it can be an enabler for all these other things. That's why that, that central bank aspect is so important. It's not simply a wonkish economic issue, it's important politically for achieving some of these other ends, for reining into spending and the Marxist policies that have you know, made what used to be Argentina in the 1950s. You know, you know, it wasn't that, that long ago. Argentina was seen as California um, you know, levels of, of potential enrichment and, and prosperity. And much like, as we've seen in California, the, the decay of that state, um, that's exactly what Argentina has done, and even uh, the speed run uh, to a greater degree. Um, with the the Peronist government that they've had for for many decades,
0: yeah, and I'm speaking with uh, Tho Bishop, who is with the Mises Institute, and uh, and and so I think. Uh... That looking at why the central bank is such a critical factor, um, you know, this is a cautionary tale, I think, to the United States to see what has happened in Argentina since the 1950s and seeing what was once a robust economy and a very prosperous nation. Then w- through um, all of their policy, specifically their economic policy, now they're trying to recover from um, this this great disaster. And so, what is the lesson? I think here in terms of what Malay is trying to get back to um, for, and hopefully he can keep his campaign promises and actually, um, you know, unlike uh, President Trump, who who kept a lot of promises and who did a lot of great things um, with his administration that I think all Americans are very grateful for, but ended up having a lot of personnel that ultimately worked against his administration so he couldn't do as many things. I hope that Malay learns that lesson from the populist um, that, that was the Trump administration. Um, but what can America learn in terms of our economy so that we don't go the way of Argentina in terms of central banking and in terms of um, what has truly depressed their economy?
1: Well, I think the big thing here is just the important role that sound economics really plays into understanding how the government functions broadly. Um, because again, we've, we've had Republicans elected for you know not not just Donald Trump. Um, and not just you know George W. Bush. If you look at presidential elections, but you know and we've had this conversation in the past about you know how many times the Republicans have called it controlled Congress. Um, you know when we've had Senate majorities, when we've had you know the White House, the Senate, and Congress um, all together. And there's always been this element of kind of kicking the can down the road when it comes to spending issues, when it comes to entitlement programs that keep expanding, 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 Um, when it comes to this plays a big aspect into why Donald Trump uh, campaigned on uh, uh, bringing the troops back and and kind of ending sort of the neocon foreign policy agenda, all of this stuff. Um, leads to higher and higher spending levels. It it kicks the can down the road. It, it it hurts future generations at the expense. And in order to 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 make the current, particularly the current political class, not have to make serious decisions. And that was the 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 frustration of seeing. You know, we we are a very prosperous nation. We're the you know, most prosperous nation on the on the world. We can absorb a lot of that in the short term without seeing the long term consequences. Argentina is an example of a nation where the in result of these policies have really played out. And so that element of it, um, again, in, in the money aspect of the, the monetary policy, the central bank side of things is, you know, it's, it's not the sexiest issue. You know, it, it doesn't come up a lot in debates, but ultimately, you know, what what you have is the socialization of money. And it's the socialization of money that allows politicians to, you know, Rather than tax you directly, kind of print away the quality of your money or savings that has these very corrosive elements. And so, I think that's I think bringing an, an economic perspective to the forefront. Um, you know, which would the, the, the key task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design, as F. A. Hayek put it. And so, just keeping that that mindset in mind that we're not only looking at the immediate consequences of policies, but all of the the secondary costs, the opportunity costs. Just just that side of thinking, which is so alien, unfortunately, in the way that most politicians think, the way that Washington has governed itself for a very long time. Um, this is another reason why states are so much more effective. Is because states ha- states can't print their own money. They they typically have balanced budget restraints and the like. This is why Florida has been so prosperous. This is why Texas has been so spro- so prosperous. Um, cutting that link between a central bank that can print uh, without taxing. Um, confront really without any sort of democratic restraints to what it does is what fuels this administrative behemoth and really is is the, the back door into an increasingly socialized, nationalized economy. Argentina is an example of how bad it can be and hopefully people and hopefully belays example in, in a in a world right now where there's so few governments that seem to actually be serving their people. If Malay is successful in Argentina the same way that President Bukele in El Salvador has made El Salvador one of the safest places in the world, has made him one of the most popular presidents in South America, if we start seeing countries that are successful at improving the quality of life of their people, then all of a sudden you see other leaders, whether it's around South America, whether it's in Europe, whether American politicians can see what Malay does and see an example there. Creating a model of good governance is something that can spread internationally, and that's why you know, an election in Argentina, a place in the world most people probably don't think about on a day-to-day basis, can have an impact for liberty not just internationally but most importantly here at home. Because if Malay is successful, then hopefully that will lead more politicians to recognize what can be done in dealing with some of the real economic consequences that affect again, not just Argentina but America and really most of the world right now.
0: Yeah, really well said, uh, Tho Bishop from the Mises Institute, and um, you should follow him on X at Tho Bishop, and uh, and and this type of worldview difference between those who are for leaders who are for freedom and prosperity and have um, an an economic outlook that is truly geared toward uh, serving the people rather than statism, Uh, we've seen a marked difference between the red states and the blue states, and I think that is going to be on display uh, in the debate that we're going to talk about more um, tomorrow and and later on this week, uh, Wednesday night, between Governor DeSantis out of Florida and uh, Governor Gavin Newsom out of California. And they're just, there's no. There, there. I, I just can't see how Gavin Newsom could possibly get on the stage and say I have governed this better, look at the economy in California under my leadership, look at um, all yeah, the streets of San Francisco, look at all of these things, look at all the people that have moved to Florida. But this is really a clash of ideology. And so rather than as conservatives focusing just on the national presidential race and the primary in terms of the personalities, we need to look at the worldview differences. And I would submit just personally that any Republican on that stage is better than any Democrat that could be put up because of the worldview differences. And we need to be focusing on what is the best in terms of values and the worldview differences in these candidates, not just the primary clash in terms of personality. So it's going to be really interesting, that debate on Wednesday. We'll we'll be back tomorrow with more.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.
0: I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound?